The following sermon is from Christ Church Port Orange. For more information, find us online at joinwithjesus.org. Thanks for listening. Amen. If you have your Bible, would you turn to 1 Peter? 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2. I've been studying various parts of the scriptures this week, and 1 Peter keeps popping out at me, and I felt like the Lord was leading me to to give us a sermon from 1 Peter chapter 2, specifically verses 9 and 10, which I'll read. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9 and 10. You ready for this? Are you? Did you go back to sleep already? No? Here we go, verse 9. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. The title of our sermon this morning is Made by Mercy. Somebody say, Made by Mercy. Made by Mercy. It's important that you know uh, what you were made by. Tiffany and I have this ongoing conversation. We're coming up on our 20th anniversary, and we're finding, uh, we, we hoped that by now we'd be that old married couple that melded into one human. <laughs> you know, the destiny, where we're just so in tune with each other that we're just on the same page all the time and always thinking and finishing each other's sentences and stuff. <laughs> it's not happening yet. Maybe at year 40. I don't know. Maybe that's when it happens. And we regularly have these conversations after, uh, you know, a misunderstanding or conflict, trying to figure out what were you thinking? Uh, why, did, why would you respond this way and I would respond this way? And a lot of our a lot of our conversations come back to uh, our early childhood and kind of like what t- created us into the people we've become and how we're so kind of distinctly different from each other. Not, not just in the typical ways, man and, f- and woman, you know, planner and non-planner, optimist and realist, uh, but in the ways that kind of like drive our personalities. And it's a helpful thing for us to understand where we came from and kind of the things that, that shaped us. So um, I was a very insecure and very awkward uh, young person. I know it's hard for you to imagine. Uh, and uh, it, growing up in a large family, I have, I have four sisters and two brothers from the same two parents. We lived in the same house, all nine of us, growing up. And every one of them, introverts. And me, massive extrovert. Isn't this just strange? Like, how does that happen? How do all my siblings would like to just hole up in their room and read a book they hang out with people. They can be the life of the party, but then they have to recharge for three days. My, my, parents, my parents are not big fans of crowds. And uh, here I am, just can't get enough of humans. I'm just like, more, 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 more. Isn't that so strange? Like, what makes you? I don't understand where that comes from. Is that like divine design? Is it something happened? But, but one of the things that I've recognized that keeps coming out 
uh, is that I always felt kind of like not good enough. I was kind of raised in a, a strict, kind of strict religious environment where a lot of emphasis was put on behavior. And so uh, parents were enforcing certain type of behavior. There was corporal punishment involved. It was ugly. And, uh, and so we, you kind of had that. But then I lived in a, a neighborhood and hung out with people who were not religious at all. And I didn't feel like I fit in. And so I was always trying to like either project a version of myself that was better than reality or somehow break the ice by becoming the center of, of attention. And um, even now, I'm 40 years old, and even now I can like immediately revert back into either of those two things. And it's super unhealthy. And I always go back and I go, how did I end up here? Why do I do this? It drives me crazy. And it drives her crazy too. <laughs> so even last night, we had a little argument because we were in a situation and I was with, we were with a big bunch of people at a birthday party and we knew half of them and didn't know half of them. And, and I just like turned on the old class clown. <laughs> just, just went there, just did that. And, um, and I get the gentle nudge from my wife, the respectful, kind, quiet, gentle nudge of, you've reached the line, let's stop right there. And I just blew right past the line. I was like, oh no, we've just gotten started. Let's, uh, let's do this thing, you know? So that went well. <laughs> and then we have this conversation uh, for her too. So she's the youngest of two children from a divorced family with a mom that worked full-time out of town. And so she essentially raised herself on, you know, soap operas and hot pockets and got herself to school. And, and, and essentially by, by, by ninth grade, ran the household and made sure nobody was late. And, and she just is this kind of driven woman that knows what needs to be done and, and works towards that end and, you know, fiercely independent and executive. And I'll, I'll go along for the ride for that for the most part. Uh, but it just kind of causes us to have some, some, some grind in the relationship. You guys know what I'm talking about? And I fell off. Wow, I'm really glad. I'm not, it's not just me. Yeah. I feel like, uh, hello, my name is Jesse and I am dysfunctional, you know? <laughs> I guess we all are. Um, and it sometimes can be helpful to kind of take apart your issues and go back to the beginning and recognize what shaped you, you know? What kind of made me this way? And that's a helpful exercise because the things that got you through difficult circumstances when you were seven typically aren't effective when you're 35, you know? <laughs> The things that get you through high school and help you find your tribe, they, they stop working in your 50s. Can I get amen? amen? And so we need to be able to sometimes identify what shaped us and then replace it with something that's a little bit more appropriate for the age and stage. And Peter's doing something similar here in this letter. He's writing to the churches of the diaspora, the churches who uh, have come under persecution and been forced out of Jerusalem and into these surrounding areas. They've lost family, businesses, land. They've run out of opportunity. They've become sojourners and foreigners. They, they are now, you know, at the, at the mercy of the people in, with whom they rest and, and trying to figure out a new normal. This is a very difficult period of time for these particular people. Not only that, They've given up all of the old comforts for the sake of following Jesus as Lord and Master. They've come to believe that he is the Messiah, the anointed one forecast in the Old Testament, the, the, the Israelite of Israelites, the God-man, and they've put all their chips in his basket and it's caused them to lose everything. And now the only people they have are now this ragtag group of, of house churches that are comprised of both the faith-filled 
Israelites and these godless Gentiles who are learning from zero, and they're trying to figure out how to get along with each other, how to find purpose and meaning, how to make a difference to fulfill the mission that God has them, how to interpret their own suffering and the challenges they're facing for their faith. And so Peter, this apostle and this guy that knew Jesus firsthand, spent three years of his life with him, had some really moving, life-altering experiences. He's now been commissioned to, to lead these churches, care for these churches apostolically. And so he writes, and in chapter two, in verse nine, he reminds the followers of Jesus, Jew and Gentile alike, that they were made by mercy. What defines these people is the mercy of God. And when you come to understand what shaped you, and it's the mercy of God, it transforms the way you see yourself, others, the world, and your calling or vocation. It gives you strength and vision to see beyond the difficult circumstances in front of you, even your own pain, even the own parts of the situation you can't understand and don't know why God would do this way, and to take you back to this fundamental reality of, of who you are. Look what he says in verse nine. But you are... And there's these four phrases, a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. These are all borrowed phrases from the Old Testament. Peter's not being original here. He's not crafty. These are things that God was saying to his people, Israel, even though they failed at all of them, this is who God forecast they would be. And who Peter now knows Christians are in and through Jesus Christ, a chosen race. I actually don't like that in the ESV. I use the ESV because I mostly like the ESV, but this is one of the reasons I don't like the ESV. And partly it's because of our culture and the misuse of this word race. Uh, it's a terrible word. Um, the reality is, is there's, there's no such thing as races. The idea of races was created as a way of putting down one group of people and, and elevating another group of people. Do you realize this? Um, there is no such thing as race and there ought to be no such thing as racism, It'll still exist, but we should call it for what it is, shadeism, because that's what it is. I, I prefer my shade, or I think my shade is better, but there is one race. Do you know it? And if you read the scriptures from front to back, you realize that in God's eyes, there is only one race. I love the Charles Wesley hymn. He left his father's throne above, so free, so infinite, his grace emptied himself of all but love and bled for Adam's helpless race. His mercy all, immense and free, for, oh my God, it found out me. Amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, should die for me? There's a variety of colors in the human race, but there is one race. And this word actually could be translated in a number of different ways. The Greek word here is genos. The King James Version uses the word generation, a chosen generation. That's kind of misleading too, because it kind of sounds like this like group of people in the middle of other people who are not included. This word genos uh, really has to do with a kind, maybe even kindred, offspring, or distinct in nationality. I like Strong's definition, says the aggregate of many individuals of the same nature, kind, sort, or species. It's a way of saying there's something about us that makes us one, but that one thing is not a race. That one thing is that we have received the mercy of God through faith in Jesus. We are his, and so we are adopted into his family, and we may not look the same. We may not come from the same places. We may not have the same personalities. We may be a group of type A, get-her-done type of people and class clowns. However, we are one chosen 
group of people. We are here and we are one because God called us out, because God picked us. We are, we are a chosen group. We are a royal priesthood. I love this, a royal priesthood. A royal priesthood. You know, in the Old Testament, uh, there was royalty, the kings, the lines of kings, and there was the priest class, uh, the descendants of Aaron, the Levites, but there was never a priest king. Did you know that? There was never a priest king. In fact, God's judgment on King Saul was that he tried to play the priest. Do you remember? The reason that Saul eventually had lost God's support was because he did not wait for the priest to arrive and instead he decided to offer a sacrifice as the king. Ah, Wrong answer, pal. Do your job. Stick to your own notes. There's never been a priest king. And yet here we're having this idea combined that we are a royal priesthood. Now think about what that intimates. As royalty... That means you have authority. Do you realize? You have authority. You are the chosen ones of God who have been put into places of power and influence and you are called to rule and reign. I mean, that's where this whole thing is going. The book of Revelation forecasts that we who are faithful, who conquer and endure to the end in the new creation will be given to reign, to judge angels, to be involved in things far beyond what any of us are doing right now. So we are, in, in essence, royalty because of the mercy of God. But we are royal priesthood. And if royalty speaks to our authority, the priesthood speaks to access, access. How many of you guys wanted to talk to the president? You would just walk up to the Oval Office and sit down and wait for him to get there. Wouldn't happen, would it? Because we don't have access to the Oval Office, do we? There's lots of places we can't go, we can't get to. There's only a handful of people who are allowed in these certain places. And the priest class was the very same. In the Old Testament, you didn't just go into the temple. You didn't just go into the holy place, the most holy place, the holy of holies. That, was, that space where God and man intersected was restricted and there had to be atoning sacrifices made and purification made so that one man once a year could go into God's exact presence. And so there was not access And in fact, if you follow the history of the temple, you'll see that the tabernacle started with just these three kind of main spaces. And then the temple was built and there was an outer courtyard. And by the second temple, you've got a Gentile gate, a woman's gate, the the Israelite men can come this far. And then, so you have all these different places of access where you're access denied, Ah, not allowed. Feels like my recent Speedway experience. (laughs) Can I come in here? No, you may not. This is my ticket. That only gets you this far. And so your access denied. But as a royal priesthood, you are now given unhindered access to the presence of God. It's one of the things that I absolutely love about coming to church. You know, we have God's presence within us. We've been purified to become temples of the Holy Spirit. You realize that? No, no, other, no other people before Jesus in the history of God's people ever had the Holy Spirit without measure the way we do. Yes, the prophets, some of the priests, the kings, those anointed for special purposes. David pleaded with God when he sinned, please don't take your spirit from me. But now in Jesus, we all get the spirit. This went, I mean, Acts chapter two, Jesus goes Oprah Winfrey on us. You get the spirit, you get the spirit, you get the spirit. Everybody gets the spirit, right? And so we have access to the Holy Spirit. But something also happens when we come together, we gather our faith together, we come into God's house Peter says, like living stones, we're being built together into an inhabitation for the spirit of God, which means he inhabits this space when we gather here differently than he does when we're alone or when this space is empty. Do you know that? 
as you come to him, verse four says. Something powerful is happening. And God has eyes on people coming into the space where he exists because of the living stones who are joining their faith together, who have been recipients of mercy. I pray every Sunday that there would be somebody in the house or more than one somebody who doesn't know Jesus and is sensing the presence and power of God around them because you've gathered the way that you have. Do you understand? This is part of what it means to be part of the royal priesthood. It also means that when you go out, you are a sort of intercessor, a mediator. When you run into people who have no hope in the world, who are facing tragedy, difficulty, heartache, temptation, pain, whatever it is they need, you, you are a person that can put a hand on them as a human person and a hand on God as a redeemed person and act as an intermediary to say, listen, you need what I've received and I can introduce you to the one who can give it to you. Do you see? And so we, God has made for himself a royal priesthood and he's made every single one of us priests unto God. Isn't that amazing? And so we have authority and we have access. He continues these descriptors from the Old Testament, a holy nation, a holy nation. The idea of holy is to be set apart, to be devoted to, to be different, distinct, separate. One of the things you find if you read the Old Testament, you do your Bible in a year and you get into Leviticus and you find these different things that were supposed to set apart the people of God, tassels and leathers and shaving and haircuts and processes and dietary restrictions, all these kind of things that made the, the people of God somewhat peculiar, somewhat peculiar. People look at them and go, that's, that's weird. You know, that's strange. And part of that was to show there's a distinction between the clean and the unclean, the righteous and the unrighteous, the good and the evil. And so God was saying, I'm gonna make a people for myself who are distinct because they are set apart. Now that was powerless to change the human heart, which we discovered through the narrative of Israel. They may have been able to shape on the outside all the things God said, but they couldn't do for themselves through law what only God by his spirit could do in the heart of a man and a woman. And so, but God's putting himself together, a holy nation, a people built because of their being set apart. Deuteronomy 7, 6 to 9 captures a lot of this. Look at it with me in verse 6. For you are a people, this is God speaking to the, the people of God in the wilderness, receiving the law. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession. Out of all the peoples who were on the face of the earth, it was not because you were more in number than other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But it was because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers, that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, Listen, verse nine, know therefore that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations. You know what should give you confidence for your future is that you were made by mercy. You were made by the hand of God who loves you and is faithful to fulfill his promises. Listen, I, I, I even asked myself last night, I woke up like five times in the middle of the night and I was, I was conflicted because of Tiffany and my's conversation and me acting like a crazy, silly person and drawing attention to myself. Hey, everybody, look at me, look at me. 
And I kept waking up with this like, feel, this like wave of shame. You ever feel that like wave of shame? You're like, you're such an idiot. Happens sometimes when you watch yourself on video. You ever watch yourself on video and you're like, that's not the way I remember it. You know, and then you're like, really? And they're like, play it again. No, please don't play it again. And you get that like, ooh, ooh, feeling, ooh. I kept having that feeling over and over again. And I just felt the Holy Spirit speaking to me, reminding me like, um, that's, that's, that's kind of how you're wired. That's who you were. That's maybe what shaped you to this point, but, <clears throat> but you're now an object of mercy. And so let me, let me forgive you. Let me point out that that's past the line. Let me remind you what a gift you have in your wife to give you the little gentle squeeze on the knee. Listen to that next time. Right? And, and, and then I just received God's mercy. I just felt like he was being merciful. The hope that I have this morning is not that I'll do better next time. I'm not sure that I will. Sorry, babe. I'm going to try. I really am going to try. I really am. But, but the hope that I have is that God's going to be faithful. The hope that I have is that God's going to be faithful. Even when I look to this, to the, this world, I don't know what's going to happen in our world, and I don't know what, I, what I'll be able to do about it. I don't know where, where all this is going. I don't even, I don't even know what my, what my personal future, what my children's life is going to look like. And, I, and I'm just living day by day by day. But my faith isn't in my methods. My faith isn't in uh, my maturity. Uh, but my faith is in God's mercy. He is the one who loved me first and called me and chose me. And he did that for you. And, and he is the one who is faithful to his promises. And we are here because he is faithful to his promises. He's expanded his ability to make a people for himself from one man, Abram, to a son of promise, Isaac, to a grandson who shouldn't have received the blessing but did, Jacob, who struggled with God to become Israel, who was blessed with 12 sons whom God whom God used to bring about a nation for himself, but ultimately that culminated not in a nation, geo-ethnic nation, but in one man, a son of David, of the tribe of Judah, a Messiah, the, the true Israelite, the true human, the second Adam, the one who became for us the pinpoint of God's mercy and in whom we receive God's love and promises and his name is Jesus. And he's the only reason that we have hope for a future. When we look around, we should see, hey, God's building something here and he's using us and we're made by mercy, individually and corporately. Lastly, he says that he's made us a people for his own possession. That's a weird translation too. Um, that idea of peculiarity actually pops up here in the original language, a, a peculiar people, a special treasure, actually. And the verb there has the idea of acquiring something. I don't know how many of you guys are treasure hunters. Any of you guys treasure hunters? Anybody ever like walk into a pawn shop or a whatnot shop and you're looking for a certain thing? You've got a little, little, little uh, room at your house. You got a little tchotchkes on a little shelf you built around the top of the room. Don't, don't raise your hand. And... Uh, I don't know, but some of you, um, I, I, I'm like that too. I, I don't do this because I can't, but if I was Jay Leno, I would have just as many cars as Jay Leno. I'm just being honest with you too, because I would, I would. I would. I would have a warehouse and I would drive them all regularly. That's what would happen. They would be my special treasures. I don't have access to that kind of funds and I'm still married, so that will not happen. <laughs> however, however, uh, the scriptures use this terminology to talk about the people of God who become the objects of his mercy becoming this special treasure 
the sentimental has meaning to God and, and we're special to him. And we may not look like you would expect, but we look like what God wants. We're collectibles. Isn't that beautiful? A people for his own possession. And this is important. This is important. We have this tendency because of God's faithfulness to look back to build our faith, but there's also a way in which our faith looks forward, knowing that we were made by mercy. Isaiah 43, 18 to 21 shapes it for us. Look, look at verse 18. Remember not the former things, nor consider the things of old. Behold, I am doing a new thing. Now it springs forth. Do you not perceive it? I will make a way in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. The wild beasts will honor me, the jackals and the ostriches, for I give water in the wilderness, rivers in the desert to give drink to my chosen people, the people whom I formed for myself that they might declare my praise. God does something when he shapes people by his mercy, he turns us into worshipers. He turns us into people who take our mess and his mercy and turns it into music. And I love this because it reminds us to stop looking right here all the time and to look to Jesus at the mercy we've received. That's what made us us. And then to reflect that and to express that in worship, that you may declare my praise. And Peter does the exact same thing in verse nine. That you may, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. I'm so grateful to God he didn't leave me in darkness. You don't know what you don't know when you're lost in darkness. You're fumbling around and stumbling around trying to make headway, only becoming battered and bruised like a parent walking through a dark house on Legos. It's painful and it leads, it leads to nothing good. And yet God comes into our world by his mercy because of his love for us and his faithfulness. And he flips on the light so we can see. He shines his light into our heart and he invites us to be recipients of his great mercy. And brothers and sisters, this, this puts us in a position of being able to proclaim his excellencies and not our own. Verse 10 says, once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. This is a summation of the book of Hosea. I know that probably wasn't on your reading list this morning. The Old Testament minor prophet Hosea, God uses his life as an object lesson. He takes a wife of adultery who continues to leave him and cheat on him. And he goes back to get her and to bail her out of jail and to buy her back. And he has children with her and God tells him to name the children not my people and no mercy. Aren't those beautiful names? But then in Hosea chapter two, verse 23, God moves and he makes a promise in verse 23. I will sow her for myself in the land and I will have mercy on no mercy. And I will say to not my people, you are my people. And he shall say, you are my God. You are my God. Listen, I don't know uh, what you came in with this morning. I don't know what the pinpoint of the need for mercy in your life is. Uh, I know 
I know where I was calling out for mercy last night and this morning. I know where to run to when I need mercy in the future. I don't know where your pinpoint of mercy is, but here's what I got to tell you. We serve the God of mercy. And in fact, he is shaping for himself people and a people who are made by mercy who are made to be merciful to others and to draw people to the merciful God, to become a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possessions. Listen, God's gonna send us into some weird places, into hard situations. If we look at our circumstances, just like Peter's audience, we're gonna go, where are you, God? And Peter reminds us that as objects of God's mercy, we are where God wants us. It may look dark, but we are the lights. It may look dismal, but we are the ones to bring good news. It may look like everyone's against us, but all of those people are those God wants to reach with the proclamation of his excellency, and we are the ones as object of his mercy that are there to shout that from the rooftops. And so let God work in the midst of your struggle. Let God work at the point of your need, but don't forget that you were made by mercy. It's part of your story. It's part of your story. There's other weird parts of your story. There's other weird parts of mine. There's things that make us tick, but nothing shapes our identity like the mercy of God. Is that your story? Were you made by mercy? Are you postured to receive mercy that you need today? Do you know that you wake up to new mercy tomorrow? Now, if you're here and you're a follower of Jesus, maybe you're just amening, thumbs up, good stuff, that's right. But I trust that there's people who are here this morning that have not yet become the objects of God's mercy. It's news to them, but it isn't good news yet until you receive it as your own. And I wonder if you're willing to bring your mess to God's mercy and let him transform your story. Not only, not only will he pour out his mercy on your life to give you forgiveness, redemption, adoption, the gift of his Holy Spirit, he'll change your life forever, but he also is gonna put you into something that he's doing that's miraculous and will change your life and the life of those around you. Peter says in verse four, we don't have time to get into it, but he says, as you come to him, like living stones, you are being built together. He reminds us that Jesus is the chief cornerstone upon whom all this is built. He was rejected so that we might be accepted. His death became the pinpoint of our receiving mercy. And now we are being built together as a temple of the living God. And so when we come together, we are now making God's presence known, lifting up our voices in praise and proclaiming the excellencies of him because we were made by mercy. But you know, God has sights on every single person. I tell you what, if you come to church and you're not a Jesus follower, buckle up because he wants you. He wants to get through your thick skull he wants to get over your cynicism. He wants to get past your objections and he wants to meet you at the place of your need and he wants to pour out mercy into your life. And you need it, you need it. And so don't leave church without it. Remember Visa, MasterCard, don't leave home without it. Here's my, here's my appeal to you. You need mercy, don't leave church without it. I'm gonna ask the worship team to come forward and I want you to turn to John 14. It's on the screen too, you don't have to turn there. John 14. Listen to what Jesus spoke to his disciples on the night of his death, his departure, his betrayal. They were confused. They wouldn't know how to understand what was happening. But Jesus forecasted 
enough of the future to give them peace. And look what he says, John 14, one to three. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. Listen to this. In my father's house are many rooms. This is a very intimate invitation. This is Jesus saying, I want you to come home and live with me. I want to adopt you into the family of God. You'll know my father is your father and there's a room in your house. There's space for you. Now listen to what he says. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself that where I am, you may be also. I go to prepare a place for you. I don't know what kind of picture you get in your mind when you think about those words. Jesus is saying, there is a space for you. You were created in the image of God on purpose and for a purpose. You were made by God, for God, to live with God and to work with God forever. And so whether you decide to follow him or receive his mercy this morning, there is a room with your name on it in the Father's house. Do you know that? It's there for you. Jesus wasn't going to build it. He said, I go to prepare a place for you. Some of you guys go instant HGTV. Jesus is in there. It's a Lowe's commercial. He's painting the walls your favorite color. He's getting some bedding that's just your style. He's not, Jesus is not Joanna, okay? You know how he's going to prepare a place for you? Because without what he is going to do, access denied for you. Do you realize this? He's going to make a way so that you can get to the place God wants you to live forever. And he has done that by the sacrifice of his own blood. He stood in harm's way and took the full fury of God's wrath in your place so that you could receive forgiveness. He died to death and was victorious over the grave so that in him you could be risen to new life to walk in it, to go through the waters of baptism, to become one of his own, part of his family, part of the church, and then live your life by the power of his Holy Spirit, knowing I was made by mercy and I've got a story to tell. Listen, my best day wasn't yesterday. And it's not looking good for tomorrow. But I follow the God of mercy who's fixed his steadfast love on me who is faithful to his promises and will take me from one degree of glory to the next. And that invitation is there for you as well. Listen, there's nothing you can do to bridge the gap between where you're at and where God wants you to be. But there is mercy sufficient for every person. And so this morning, if you have not become the recipient of God's mercy, don't leave church without it. If you are here and something stands between you and God, your guilt or shame or pain or struggle or resentment or anger, come to God with it and let his mercy wash it away. He has gone to prepare a place. He has made a way where there was no way. There is a home in heaven for you and there is mercy for today from his hand. Will you receive it? The worship team's gonna lead us in one last song. And I wanna urge you I want to urge you, listen, don't care what anybody thinks. If you need mercy from God's hand, either for the first time 
the first time in a long time or because of what you did last night, don't leave church without it. And so get up out of your seat when they're singing and come up here and have a moment with God. No one's gonna bother you and come to God with your hands open and say, I need your mercy. I need to be made by your mercy. I need to be defined by your mercy. Turn me into one of those people that proclaim your excellencies. God, I need to know that I was drawn from darkness and brought into your marvelous light. And watch what he does. Some of you think you get out of your chair and you walk up here and it's weird and then you go back to your chair and nothing's different. That's not what happens. That's not what happens because we serve a real God who's active and present. And if you're feeling that thump in your chest and that draw, that's him. And so come receive from him what he wants to give to you and allow yourself, like me, to be made by mercy. Amen? Father God, we invite you now by your Holy Spirit to do a work in each of us. God, I pray that you would speak to every heart in the room and, and online. God, whatever it is that stands against us, whatever, whatever is blocking the flow of your power in our life, God, even especially for those who have not put their faith and trust in Jesus this morning, God, I pray that you would draw us near and draw us out and allow us to become recipients of your steadfast love and your unfailing mercy. In Jesus' mighty name, amen. Let's stand.